Hello, and welcome to the Alacrial Tarot Podcast, your source for learning all 78 cards in the deck, deepening your understanding and developing your intuition, as well as general advice on your tarot journey. I'm Alacrial, a tarot reader from California, and your host for this podcast. In this episode, we finally begin our study of the Major Arcana. Hooray! But we don't get terribly far. <laughs> we make it all the way to the Hierophant, card 5 of the Major Arcana. A good deal of our discussion centers on the Empress and Emperor cards as well. Several of these beginning cards in the Majors carry really weighty meanings and significance, so I felt it was important that we spent adequate time on them before we continue along the rest of the Fool's journey. Rest assured, though, we will pick it up again very soon. As always, I hope you find the episode both entertaining and enlightening, and that you enjoy the show. Welcome back to a slightly more on-schedule uh, episode of the Alacrial Tarot Podcast. I am so excited for this one because I get to do my very first Patreon or patron shout-out. <laughs> so, I was at work. I work in an office during my day job, and I was pretty much minding my own business, and it was a pretty ordinary, you know, back-to-the-grind kind of start to the week. And um, my phone buzzed, and I looked over. I had an email notification, and uh, I saw immediately that it was um, from Patreon. Uh, But usually it's just the wretched Patreon newsletter, and it's like, I don't care. I mean, I I realize that I've signed up for that, and like, whatever, go ahead and deliver it to my inbox. But it's not something about which you get excited. And then I read the subject line, and I was like, Oh my god, no, actually, that's somebody that's signing up to be a patron of mine, and I was over the moon about it, and it absolutely made my day. So a big thanks to, and I hope that I don't get the name, like, horribly wrong, but my very first patron is Alicia, or perhaps Alicia. I'm not exactly sure how to how to pronounce her name, nor am I certain whether or not she would be comfortable with me sharing her entire uh, handle uh, or her last name. At least I think the second part of that is her last name. So we shall just stick to Alicia. But you know who you are. Thank you so much means the world to me. I very much hope that several more will follow your wise example and make full use of all of the extra exclusive goodies that I am putting up on Patreon for all of those who would like additional content from me. Yeah, who knows? Maybe next podcast episode we'll have even more people to shout out. I certainly hope so. Fingers crossed. Okay, we finally get to start on the majors. The major arcana, or the major arcana. There's probably some... Uh, lingering debate on how to pronounce that properly, but I've heard it both ways, and I don't know, I kind of flip-flop myself. So, either way, uh, at any rate, they would constitute the trump cards of the uh, tarot deck. So, uh, there are 21 of them altogether. Uh, 1 through 20 are labeled with you know, the standard numerals, and then the Fool, which is the very first one, is actually labeled with a zero. So that's where we get the 21 of those. And all of them taken together uh, give us a pretty broad, overarching view of the stuff that is bound to come up during the course of a life. Um, One of the very popular ways of learning the majors is through the use of something called the fool's journey. Um, And I have done some research on this, and I think people uh, give that different significance depending on the tradition they're coming from or depending on how they want to make it work for them. But essentially, the fool's journey is just a way of laying out the cards and of conceiving of the fool uh, visiting each of the scenes and figures contained within uh, cards 1 through 20 of the majors. So the fool, being zero, encounters, let's see, for example, first and foremost, the magician, then the high priestess, then the empress, and, and so on and so forth, and learns a different lesson or has a different experience at each of those uh, scenes, at each of those figures. Um, 
And if you are inclined to uh, remember things from a narrative better than just, you know, rote memorization, then that might be a really good option for you. And there is no one prescribed fool's journey, at least I don't think so. Um, like I said, people have kind of adapted that concept. Um, and to me, it kind of goes hand in hand with the concept of pathworking the tarot. And I may have mentioned this before, but in case you can't recall, or in case I actually haven't, uh, pathworking is basically a process wherein the uh, tarot reader or tarot practitioner selects a card or grouping of cards and meditates on them in such a way as to visit them. If you are familiar at all with uh, astral travel or astral work, you might uh, get into to a state of deep meditation and visit the figure from the card uh, that you're choosing to pathwork. Uh, you might visit them uh, in the astral plane. You might have a conversation with them. One of the projects that I had been doing, because you see, I have never fully pathworked uh, through the the tarot deck because it's a lot of work. I mean, you know, if you say, oh conservatively 20 minutes of meditation for every card, well, then you're going to do that times 78. Roughly, that works out to be 26 hours of meditation just to get through the tarot deck once. And that's t assuming, you know, 20 minutes per card, and that's really not sufficient for some cards. Some cards it will take longer, maybe others not quite so long. Um, but yeah, it is a huge time commitment to go pathworking through uh, the tarot like that. Nevertheless, if you want, you can kind of combine the concept of pathworking and the fool's journey to um, to figure out uh, a narrative that works for you and helps you to remember all of these cards. So, as we go through, I will try and tell you know a, a pretty basic narrative, just so that that might spark your interest and your ideas whenever you choose to do it for yourself. And you can obviously embellish that story for your own practice so that you personalize the meanings for you, which of course is half of what learning tarot is about anyway. Um, but yeah, so basically when you path work, you embody the energy of the fool and you, you go through and you, you visit each card. So because we're talking about the Fool, that's a really good place to begin. The Fool, in the context of pathworking, is just sort of your own personal signifier. It is um, a very naive card, and it's very new, very innocent, um, and very open to new ideas and receptive in that way. And these things are all attributes which we can ascribe to the Fool. In the traditional Rider-Waite-Smith deck, which is of course the deck that I will be using when I go through the descriptions with you guys here, we see that the Fool is in a brightly colored tunic. He has a long wand or a rod over his shoulder that has a pouch sort of a a tied to it in the back there, very similar to like, you know, um, the, the old depictions of like a hobo uh, with a sack on the end of a stick slung over the shoulder. That's kind of the pose there. And in the opposite extended hand, he holds a white flower. And there is a little dog, uh, also white, uh, near, his, near his feet there. Uh, and he is in the card about to step off of what appears to be a cliff. So he's in he's on like a rocky outcropping there and is looking more or less up at the sky, not really paying attention to where he is going, and he is about to, yeah, step off. Uh, it is a beautiful day. The sun is shining very clearly in the upper right-hand corner of the card there. Uh, and so the overall tone and energy behind the card, just from a color perspective, is quite optimistic or quite pleasant, you know. Um, and in fact, when you look like toward the upper right, which is, you know, where the sun is located, everything is quite bright and sunshiny. And as you go down toward the lower left, which is where the fool is going to be stepping off the cliff, presumably, things get to a much cooler tone um, and get a little bit darker. So, uh, you know, if you look at it purely from a color and artistic standpoint, we see that things are going from a position of certainty and kind of, you know, airy fairy la la land almost because that's sort of what the fool is doing he's kind of got his head in the clouds and he's not really paying attention to what he's doing and he's just sort of coasting along and life is going great um but he's about to step into unknown territory and you know concentration will be required and a lot more focus is going to be necessary uh if you are going to have success with that 
So the fool, when it comes up in a reading, uh, often signifies a new beginning. So just as the fool is embarking on a new journey here, he is at the very beginning of that kind of thing, uh, this can mean generically new beginnings, a new uh, experience. It can also mean inexperience, because the fool uh, is a young soul heading out into the world for perhaps the first time, uh, going to experience, you know, heaven only knows what. There is a lot to experience in the world. It's kind of the energy of when you transition out of maybe living with your parents or living with your, uh, your own family and starting to stand on your own two feet, and how there is a process of trial and error and learning and inherent in that. That's very much the fool energy, because you're experiencing all of that for the first time, and it is new. Um, so there is an inexperience there. Uh, and lastly, one of the keywords that I would give toward uh, the fool is innocence or naivete. And that is just because sometimes uh, we, have to, uh, we have to have our illusions shattered, and we have to have our thoughts rearranged when we encounter the reality of the world. Because I don't know about you, but like, like, when I went out into the world, I found that, yes, I was prepared for it, but there were there were differences between knowing what to expect or thinking that I knew what to expect and actually dealing with it. And so there are, there's a certain sense of innocence lost there and a sort of shedding of some naivete. I never considered myself to be an incredibly naive person, but some people, when they set out into the world, really uh, don't have a clue what's about to hit them. And so maybe the the, you know, naive uh, attribute is more amplified for, for some individuals rather than others. Nevertheless, that is all part of the meaning and symbology behind the fool there. Now, of course, the fool can come up in a reading upside down. And when that happens, I would say that it is um, signifying either a turning inward of that energy or an amplification of the more negative aspects of its right-side-up meanings. So, for example, what do we get whenever we look at the really negative and problematic side of innocence and naivete? Well, we get recklessness, perhaps, you know, charging forward uh, or just assuming things are going to work out without really thinking them through, without weighing our options. Um, so that sort of childish decision-making or lack of decision-making and just assumption that things are going to work out. Um, that recklessness there is a, is a good keyword for what, what we might associate with the fool when it comes up in reverse like that. Also, ignorance. Um, and maybe not even a concern that we are ignorant, you know, just being ignorant and being, you know, complacent at the same time, being fine with that ignorance, or maybe even worse, being arrogant, assuming that we know it all, uh, and not even being aware that we know so little and that we know nothing. Uh, that can be a really, really dangerous mindset. So um, though it is in general a pretty benign card and, and viewed on the whole relatively positively, uh, the fool, at least when it comes up in reverse like that, can can really represent uh, some quite serious uh, states of mental being and and can be a real problem if somebody is going to live their life in that way, you know. So, I mean, it all, of course, depends. But if you if you get this uh, card for somebody that thinks they've got it all figured out and you see the fool is coming up in, in reverse, there's likely something they're missing. And they may not even be open to correcting that because they may not even be aware that they're missing something. So it can be really hard, actually, when that card comes up. So even right off the bat there with, like, one of the simplest cards in the majors, uh, we see that, yeah... Even, even that carries with it a great deal of weighty meaning. And all of the majors will. Because in general, the majors are talking about broad, overarching themes in life uh, and less about the minutiae and the day-to-day. -day. Moving on, we come to the magician. The magician is the first card, the first numbered card within the major arcana there. And it is the first stop on the fool's journey. Uh, and the lesson that the fool is coming to learn from the magician, well, when he steps into this scene here, he sees, so it's got a yellow background, um, there's a lot of greenery on the bottom of the page and on the upper uh, right and left-hand corners, sort of almost bordering uh, the image. And there is a figure with a, a symbol for infinity, sort of that sideways figure eight, 
over his head, and he is holding in his right hand uh, a silver or gray wand. And he's holding it vertically, so up and down. And with his left hand, he is pointing at the ground, and he is adorned with some sort of circlet or a crown holding back his hair. And he is in white with a blue belt, and he is draped in a red robe. Um, so with his right hand, he is uh, pointing toward the top left of the frame, and with his left hand, he is pointing down at the lower right area. Um, he also is standing behind a table, a beautifully carved wooden table, and on it there is a what appears to be a golden disc with a pentacle uh, inscribed on it. There is a golden goblet or cup. There is a sword and also a staff or a wand. Uh, and all of those are laid on the table in front of the magician holding that sort of uh, up and down pose. And one of the phrases commonly associated with this card is a very popular phrase in magic, as above, so below. Um, and then by extension, that phrase can go on to say, as within, so without. And the basic meaning of that, for those of you uh, that are heretofore unaware, is that uh, the macrocosm is a reflection of the microcosm. Uh, that meaning as above, so below. So what is going on, uh, for example, astrologically speaking, uh, is also what is going on here in, in my life. That is just, that's like a, a really kind of clunky way of describing it. And that certainly doesn't encompass the entire meaning of the phrase, but that gives you like a concrete example uh, to, to think of it as. That's why we're affected by astrology, as above, so below. If, you know, Jupiter and Mars are not getting along in the heavens, then we find that things that correspond to Jupiter and Mars in our lives are also not in harmony here. And, um, yeah, that's, that's just kind of one of the assumptions, or, like I said, it's a very famous phrase in magic. It is a phrase originally associated with Hermeticism, and it is found on the Emerald Tablet, which is by Hermes Trismegistus. Anyway, before we go off on that tangent, let's get back to the magician here. So, the magician. What does he mean? What lesson does the fool learn when he encounters the magician on his journey? Well, the magician, uh, main keywords I would associate with him are manifestation, mastery or capability, and confidence and conviction. Manifestation. Manifestation is a word that we often use when we talk about magic. In order to bring something about, uh, or when we bring something about, we call it manifesting an idea. I, I want, you know, $200, so I do a money spell. I manifest $200. I want to find love, so I do a love spell, and I meet the love of my life. I've manifested that love sort of thing. Manifestation meaning applied magic, basically, there. Mastery and capability. Uh, this magician is obviously the master of the elements, because he has all of the elements laid out on his table. He's got a pentacle, a cup, a sword, and a wand there. So he is master of the elements earth, water, fire, and air. Uh, and that's where we get the mastery or capability kind of notion. And then lastly, confidence and conviction. Um, those of you who are practitioners of magic out there will understand that magic can only work if you believe in it. You have to put something of yourself in it. You've got to back it with your own spiritual convictions and your true heartfelt beliefs. And so confidence and conviction go into a magical working. And so the magician would be a representation of those concepts as well. Now, if the magician is to appear in a spread in reverse, we have a different meaning. We get kind of an amplification again of the negative traits that could go along with uh, his otherwise positive attributes. So what ways might we consider, you know, a negative way of looking at manifestation or a negative way of looking at mastery, capability, confidence, and conviction? Um, think about a con artist or a deceiver, someone who is a liar. That is what you can get. Manifestation. So maybe an irresponsible or wicked sorcerer. What is he trying to bring about? Well, he's trying to bring about things that only serve him and are very selfish, and he doesn't really care about who he hurts on the way of, to doing that. Um, confidence and conviction. I mean, the, the word or the phrase con artist comes from confidence uh, game, you know, con game, con artist, 
that's where you get con in that in that phrase there. So it is using it is, is using one's own confidence to gain someone else's confidence and take advantage of that there too. Um, and conviction, while that is normally a very positive thing, um, when you turn it on its head that way, you get deception. So, yeah, the two words that I would give you for keywords when the magician appears in reverse are deception and con artist. Moving on, now we're on the second card in the Major Arcana, and that is the High Priestess. The High Priestess is a beautiful card. It uh, is a figure of a woman clothed in in blue and white and she is in front of a tapestry that depicts greenery and some sort of fruit um there are some representations of the moon uh around her and she is holding uh with in in her arms she is holding a scroll which is sort of curling back and you can see the letters t-o-r-a so the torah represented there and that's some sort of you know judeo-christian imagery there for you there is also a black pillar to the figure's right, so as you look at it, it's on the left-hand side of the card, and then there is a white pillar on the opposite side of the card, so as you look at it, that would be the right side of the card there. Now, the uh, black pillar is labeled with a B, and the white pillar is labeled with a J. So, the High Priestess, what do we learn from her? Or what does the fool learn on his journey and when he encounters this woman here? The High Priestess is a card that is about intuition, about secret wisdom and knowing, and it is often connected to or can represent the higher self. The High Priestess is it's very hard to see because there's so much happening in the foreground but if you look behind the pillars and behind the tapestry and the throne or the chair on which she is seated behind her you can see a vast body of water an ocean or a lake uh, with some green land in the distance there we're talking about depth there we're talking about the unknown um, and because of all of the depictions of the moon, and of course we'll get into the moon later on when we discuss additional cards in the Major Arcana, but the moon is also talking about, um, you know, intuition and potentially a little bit of confusion there. Chiefly, the High Priestess is a very mysterious kind of energy. Uh, it's something that's very difficult to nail down. When the High Priestess comes up in readings for me, I often find that I have to really draw on what is going on around around the card to make sense of her in the spread. Because on her own, like I said, she's talking about intuition, secret wisdom, and higher knowing, uh, and the higher self. The High Priestess is kind of positioned in the card as the guardian uh, of those things. Um, and she doesn't give up her secrets for free. Uh, you know, you kind of have to approach her the right way to have access to the knowledge that she holds. Um, and I kind of look at that uh, so, like, in, in my life, if I get the High Priestess and I realize that there is some information that I need, um, some level of wisdom about myself that I need to access, I realize that I cannot do that by assuming that I've got it all worked out. I cannot come at the High Priestess with an attitude of arrogance and expect to learn anything. You know, you have to approach her with humility, and you have to approach her with an open and willing heart in order to get at her wisdom. And that is kind of the same idea as intuition. Intuition doesn't really usually work that well by being paired with arrogance. Intuition is about being open and receptive, and you have to approach the high priestess with that kind of energy in order to get at her wisdom and her knowing as well. When she appears in reverse, I usually read this as a blockage of some kind. I mean, the high priestess is still there. There is all that wisdom and knowledge and access to the higher self and intuition it's there, but it's blocked. Something is preventing you from getting to it. Um, so what does that mean? We, I, I would give the words confusion and uncertainty, because those are sort of the things that result when we remove intuition, secret wisdom, and knowing, and the higher self's perspective from our lives. Without those influences, we do get confused and uncertain very easily. So the high priestess in reverse is really no fun, because it, it does carry with it that energy of confusion and uncertainty. 
The next card that the fool encounters on his journey through the majors, so this is the third one, is the Empress. Now the Empress is another really gorgeous card, lots going on there, lots of symbolism to appreciate. Um, it is The scene is either one of sunrise or sunset, because the sky is orange and gold, and it looks like the sun is directly behind the head of the Empress figure, um, who is seated on uh, sort of a heavily cushioned throne or chair or bit of rock. It's really not certain there, but we can see that it, it clearly has um, some lavish cushions. Uh, everything looks very luxurious. Um, there are bright trees in the background, and there is uh, a river and perhaps a waterfall. There is wheat in the foreground next to the Empress's feet there, and the Empress herself is in white, uh, she has pearls around her neck. She has a laurel wreath around her head uh, with stars. Uh, looks like she has 12 stars um, uh, just above her head there. And she is holding a small gold scepter aloft with her right hand. Her left hand is resting on her knee. And it looks like her robe, while white, has printed on it depictions of some sort of plant life. A beautiful flower, perhaps? Um, green and red, basically, is going on there. There is also a small heart-shaped shield, um, is what conventional wisdom decides to call this, although really it's not abundantly clear to me that it is a shield, but it is a heart-shaped uh, object that has a yellow circle, um, and then below it, uh, sort of an inverted cross. So if you can imagine, it forms the astrological sign for Venus. And indeed, we I would associate the Empress with uh, Venus. More broadly, I would say that the Empress represents motherly power and fertility. She's often depicted as pregnant, though I think in this card it, she's not necessarily. It's difficult to say because of her flowing garments, but in many modern decks you will see her depicted as a pregnant woman. Um, so definitely that idea of fertility there. She also represents creativity and love, as well as abundance. Um, think Mother Earth, and think about all of the bounty uh, that is within Mother Earth there, you know, how she feeds us, how she cares for us, um, and in general, how powerful, what an incredibly powerful force she is. I'm not saying that the Empress is Gaia or vice versa. I'm just saying that those two things are very connected ideas. Mother Nature, the Empress, I can see all of that sort of intertwined here because the Empress for me is a representation of femininity in its purest sense. And I don't mean just the you know social constructs for femininity that we have ascribed uh, to women over time. You know, and or or just culturally, because of course the different cultures have different ideas about what a woman is. But this is, in as much as it is possible to define, and it, it's probably more definable. But it's just that like we as humans probably are going to have a lot of debate about what it means and how to describe it. But in as much as it is possible, I believe that the Empress represents what it is to be female, what it is to be feminine, what it is to be a woman. You know, she is one end of the kind of gender spectrum there, uh, and she represents all of the best attributes, uh, I, I guess as well as some of the worst attributes too, but really I would associate more with that coming out if she were to appear in reverse. So in reverse, the Empress I would talk about in terms of the amplification of the negative sides of her ordinarily positive traits. So, motherly power and fertility, creativity and love and abundance. How might that look in a negative context? Well, you might be dealing with somebody that is very smothering, like they love you too much and they're not letting you go your own way, make your own mistakes, and get your own learning done. They are just like absolutely smothering you. Or there could be toxic femininity or toxic feminism at play. Uh, this will probably lose me a few uh, listeners. <laughs> I don't know. I have definitely uh, stopped listening to podcasts when I have disagreed with their views on gender, sexuality, that kind of thing before. So I'm really trying to approach this in the most logical, level-headed, and helpful way possible. I do apologize if I offend anybody with this. Um, I am doing my absolute best to, uh, to distill a really, really heavy 
large topic from within the tarot uh, just in a few minutes here. So do forgive me. I hope that you will if, uh, if I don't do an absolutely perfect job. But to me, toxic femininity or toxic feminism is not really the vogue thing to talk about today. Um, the feminist narrative is very strong in our culture today, and that is well and good, because obviously it hasn't been for, you know, a lot of history. And I am not here to to debate that. That's just, you know, the way it has been. Yes, men have been sort of the dominant gender in a lot of uh, the history of many cultures throughout the world. Not all, but, you know, a lot of them, a fair few. And definitely within the United States, we have felt that, and we have seen how that has influenced history. And so nowadays the stage has kind of shifted a little bit. Women are now very much equal to men. I have believed that since I was a small child, um, and I really wasn't conditioned to believe in the superiority of one gender over another. I think that, you know, I was very at home with looking at the genders as equal since the time I was very young. However, as I have grown up, I have kind of been dismayed to find I don't know, it feels like there's almost this artificial friction being generated between masculinity and femininity nowadays, and I don't really understand it. There's a lot of overgeneralization, and there is a lot of, yeah, like I said, it just feels so artificial to me, because I I kind of all, I thought that we were all on the same page, that yes, the genders are in fact equal. They're not the same, they're very different. Um, They've got different views of things, they've got different ways of looking at things, they've got different inherent strengths and weaknesses, generally speaking. Again, that doesn't mean that, you know, you're confined to one set of strengths and weaknesses if you find yourself a woman, and another set if you find yourself a man. No, I mean, that, as we're understanding nowadays, that is way more fluid, and men have some of the strengths and weaknesses of women and vice versa, and our concept of gender identity is evolving greatly. Um, so that that is mixing and changing, and our understanding is evolving. However, uh, there can be toxicity uh, on the side of masculinity and on the side of femininity nowadays. And like I said, it's not as in vogue to talk about toxic femininity, but it certainly exists out there. Man-hating feminism is something that really breaks my heart nowadays, and I definitely do not say that this is so popular that I experience it everywhere or whatever, but I do, I do come across it every now and again. I hear stories of, uh, you know, oh, I don't know, somebody was telling me the other day about a lesbian couple who said that, you know, whenever they are going to have a boy, they are going to make sure that he knows how worthless and horrible he is because he's a boy. And I just thought, yeah, that would be definitely toxic femininity there. You know, you've taken you've taken it to an opposite extreme. You know, I'm, I definitely do not think that is common. I would certainly hope not. I don't think that everybody takes it to that level at all times. But I have heard uh, genders putting one another down a lot and making overgeneralizations about one another. And I really wish that that wasn't the case. So toxic femininity for me would be femininity or feminism that celebrates being a woman or being female at the expense of uh, men or at the expense of maleness. And we'll get into it in the next card, the Emperor, which comes directly after the Empress here, but then I'll, of course, address toxic masculinity because that is, of course, definitely a well-documented thing nowadays as well. Anyway, so sorry to have to, like, I don't know, blather on so long about that. I really, it stresses me out to talk about these things because I really don't think it's that big of an issue. I don't think it's like that. I I think if we all just tried to be really sensitive about this topic for one another and just tried to treat everybody, regardless of gender, with love and respect, we wouldn't need this, you know, and and the dichotomy, the differences, um, and the way they mix and our need to label these things just wouldn't be as important. And so that's why I don't even like talking about it that much. So I've already spent, like, way too much time. <laughs> anyway, so that's what I'm talking about when I see the Empress upside down. A smothering, like, overly motherly type of figure, or maybe somebody that is expressing toxic feminism in some way. And I gave a few examples, but that is by no means exhaustive, uh, because I definitely don't want to belabor that point. So... In general, the Empress is a fantastic card, and uh, it does also represent the feminine application of authority and power, because 
the empress is like her office empress is like that of the queen basically that of uh a, a feminine or female ruler and broadly speaking all of the queens within tarot are related uh in a way to the empress the empress energy is within each of the queens and so each of the queens though they have a different approach to things you know the queen of swords approaches things very differently for example than the queen of pentacles but they both do have that empress energy in them. And so uh, if that helps you to remember, yeah, there's lots of different ways of expressing uh, female power and female authority. All of them are contained within the empress. So she is a really large uh, umbrella energy uh, that that contains and describes all expressions of uh, female authority there as well. So that's the empress for you. Moving on, we are now on the fourth card of the majors, and that is the Emperor. The Emperor is, just as the Empress was motherly power and fertility, the Emperor is fatherly power and virility. So, whereas the Empress was about creativity and love, the Emperor is more about order and structure. Whereas the Empress was about abundance, we see that the Emperor is more about discipline. So the physical depiction of the Emperor is um, an older man. He has white hair and a long white beard uh, and mustache too. And he is seated on a stone throne decorated with ram's heads against a red and orange and yellow sky and also a kind of mountainous, rocky-looking uh, backdrop as well. There also is a little bit of water um, at the sort of the base of the mountains behind his throne there. Not as much as is depicted on the Empress card. The Emperor is wearing a golden crown with jewels in it. He is holding a long uh, scepter. It's almost, but not quite, um, the sort of uh, Egyptian Ankh symbol. Um, it's, it's not quite, um, but it does have sort of a cross with a loop on the top there. And he is also holding um, a sphere, a golden sphere in his other hand. He is dressed in red cloaks, and you can see that his feet are armored. So he's wearing, like, armored boots, um, basically, there, too. So, um, of the two, the Empress is way more inviting than the Emperor. The Emperor looks more stern, and, like, just the general aura of the card is, is much less, um, much less kind. It's much harsher. Um, and that is, I guess, the, the artist's depiction of the difference between, you know, feminine and the masculine there. So the Emperor is talking about the exercise of male control, male power, um, and we are also talking there about the attributes that are more typically assigned to men. So order and structure, as opposed to creativity and love, and discipline rather than abundance. Uh, so again, as was mentioned with the Empress, Obviously, the traits of the emperor and empress can overlap in people uh, nowadays, and I am definitely not going to be one to claim that, yes, men are all like the emperor and women are all like the empress. No, certainly not. And I have even seen the emperor describe a woman and the empress describe a man. So we don't have to get locked into the, you know, gender representations inherent to each of the cards, but traditionally the difference in the attributes are feminine power, motherly love, creativity, and abundance are all ascribed to the empress, whereas fatherly power, virility, structure, order, logic, discipline, those kind of things are ascribed to the emperor. Now, uh, the Emperor is a card that I have problems with because I really do not like being told what to do, and I do not like um, having to acknowledge any authority <laughs> in my life whatsoever. Uh, male, female, or gender neutral, I, I don't like being told what to do. I like being uh, sovereign in my own life and autonomous in my own right. Uh, so I definitely don't get as much of the I'm going to tell you what to do from the Empress as I do get from the Emperor. Um, but then when I thought about it and, you know, meditated with the Emperor a little bit more deeply, my understanding of the Emperor evolved to mean kind of the following. This is what I wrote on Instagram. 
The energy of the father, with its emphasis on authority, structure, and power, is so often viewed negatively in modern society. This is a perception which we desperately need to change. From the same source also springs guidance, protection, and the ability to build people up. So those are the positive traits that we can associate with the emperor. Though when we say authority, structure, order, discipline, those inherently sound negative to a lot of us. They sound like somebody else trying to tell us what to do and lording it over us. Um, But I think that the emperor, in the way that it is meant to be viewed in its upright form, is much more like I described uh, in my Instagram post, that being guidance, protection, and the ability to build people up. Uh, those, Those things are kind of the the traits that I would associate with the emperor as well. Now, when the emperor appears in the reverse, of course, it's a different story. That, too, is an amplification of the otherwise positive traits of uh, the emperor when he's right side up. So definitely all of the negative connotations that we have when we talk about order, structure, authority, discipline, that kind of thing, uh, is, is what we would ascribe to the emperor reversed. The Emperor Reversed is someone who is tyrannical, uh, lording power over people, and definitely um, toxic masculinity is something that I would be talking about ascribing to the Emperor upside down to. That is a misogynistic energy, one that celebrates being male at the expense of femininity, at the expense of female. It, it is completely imbalanced, and it is overly aggressive, and it is it lacks tenderness and understanding in all of its forms. That is what, for me, toxic masculinity uh, really boils down to there. Really, I guess, when I compare the two, toxic masculinity and toxic femininity, it is, I guess, being imbalanced to the nth degree toward one end or the other of the spectrum. For toxic femininity, it is being imbalanced and only acknowledging the role of the feminine in life, whereas for toxic masculinity, it is being imbalanced to such a degree that you are only acknowledging the worth and value of the masculine in life. And of course, both approaches are totally wrong. Obviously, they are two extremes on the spectrum, but in the tarot, the two cards, Empress and Emperor, when put next to one another, to me, do not describe warring factions on that spectrum. They describe a harmony. The Emperor and Empress go together, and in that way, I hope that we can learn from the tarot that men and women are designed to go together. And all of the iterations of gender and sexual identity that occur between the empress and emperor on that spectrum are to be welcomed as well. There is a place for everybody uh, in tarot, certainly, uh, and in the world at large, too. And we don't need to have any kind of friction and imbalance between us as long as we can, you know, treat one another with tolerance and love. We are first and foremost humans. And I guess even more broadly than that, depending on what you believe, we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. I think, for me, whenever I start to get really frustrated with an individual, I try and remember that this is not the only life we get, and that by the time that I incarnate again... I am going to have a different perspective. By the time that they incarnate again, they are going to have a different perspective. And it doesn't do me any good to get bogged down uh, by any small infraction or injustice um, or careless thought or word which is expressed in the here and now. You know, in the vast expanse that is infinity, it's really, really tiny and insignificant. So, you know, when I get bent out of shape because people are being uh, ignorant or unkind or whatever, um, I try and absorb that as much as possible and just release it again. Just be like, you know what? Whatever. This is, that's part of their learning process for this incarnation. It's part of my learning process for this incarnation. We're going to do better the next time. But regardless, we are all spiritual beings having a human experience. And our gender is part of that. That will change in the next incarnation, and it probably was different in the previous one, too. We're all learning, and therefore we all need to treat one another as the students that we are. 
because that's our purpose here, is we're learning, we're having experiences, and we should try and do our best personally to make sure that ours and the people that we come into contact with every day, that they as well are having positive experiences. That is, I think, what it means to be um, furthering (laughs) good karma, (laughs) building up good karma. (laughs) Anyway, that's quite enough. The Empress and Emperor are heavy topics, uh, just because of all of the things that they touch on uh, and all of the things that they represent. Moving on to hopefully less controversial cards. Next, we will see the fifth card in the majors, and that is the Hierophant. Now, the Hierophant is a card that is, it appears to be some sort of priest. He has an elaborate gold crown on. He is sitting on a throne. There are pillars on either side of him. He is holding his right hand aloft in a symbol of benediction. That's the, uh, the index and middle fingers are raised. The other two are lowered, and his thumb is sort of just, you know, alongside there. I can't remember what it is. It's some sort of symbol of benediction, uh, I do believe. In his other hand, he is holding some sort of staff. You know, I've not really focused on it too much before, but very strangely and oddly, it looks like one of those old-time, like, television aerials. <laughs> like, it's got, I don't know, it's it's a it's a golden, it's a thin golden rod, and then it's got, like, three cross pieces on it at the top there, too. Um, he is dressed in a red and white sort of motif, and he's got crosses down the front of his sash. He has two people sort of kneeling on the floor in front of him, or at least they appear to be kneeling on the floor in front of him. They are wearing uh, beautiful cloaks. Uh, each of them uh, are wearing some sort of golden sash, it looks like, and each of them also have uh, the tonsure haircut, so that being bald on the top with a ring of hair around the sides. Um, I never really looked at that before, actually, so as I go through this and as I describe these to you, I am learning about the tarot in a more deep way as well. So this really looks like um, that the Hierophant, or the priest card there, is giving his blessing or benediction to two monks, because of course the tonsure haircut is associated with monks. So it's like they are leveling up in the church, uh, or being promoted, or being, I don't know, consecrated in some way, that way. So I never paid attention to what exactly the Hierophant was doing, or what the other two figures in the card were there for. Also, uh, in front of the uh, Hierophant's feet, Uh, on the sort of little raised dais or stage that he is on, uh, there are two keys that are sort of crisscrossed over one another there. Um, So that's the imagery that's going on there. The Hierophant typically means tradition, conventional wisdom, and dogma. Right? Um, So when this comes up in a reading, it is oftentimes describing, you know, what tradition demands of us, what tradition tells us is a good idea. So for instance, if this were coming up in a career reading for me, I would look at it and say, ah, this is saying, you know, do the responsible thing, stay the course, do everything you can to make it work, keep your job for as long as you can, sell your time to the company, do it with a smile, grin and bear it type of thing. That would be the conventional wisdom of the Hierophant when it comes to the workplace. However, if I got another card, um, for example, the, oh, I don't know, the Eight of Cups, that would be saying, you know, nope, chuck it all, stack up what you've learned so far, and walk away from it in search of something else that is going to make you more happy. The Hierophant 2 can be, for some, a really difficult card, um, because it can kind of have some of the same, like, negative connotations behind um, traditional wisdom uh, that go into, like, the ideas of, like, order, structure, and authority that we were talking about from the Emperor card, because not always is traditional ideas a good way. Sometimes it's time to break with tradition and do something different and, you know, change it up a little bit. On the other hand, though, I don't want people to think of the Hierophant card as negative, because there are times that, you know, respecting tradition uh, can be really, really meaningful. This is another card that I thought was really um, profound 
uh, when I was meditating on it and when I wrote up a little something on Instagram about it. What I said of the Hierophant in my Voices of the Tarot series on my Instagram page was, I do not ask you to bow before dogma to limit your thoughts or actions. I urge you to embrace tradition to foster unity and connect with the past. So when I was when I was thinking about that and when I had written that phrase uh, as though it were the Hierophant speaking to me or to the fool, if you like, I thought about, you know, what are the positive things that tradition does for us? And it does connect us to other people that share traditions, you know. So a really easy example, Christmas traditions within your family. Now, of course, everybody's got different family history, and so this is not going to be meaningful to everybody. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to come up with something that, you know, broadly speaking, is going to hit the mark for a lot of you guys. So, uh, you know, if family uh, Christmas traditions don't really do it for you, if they're not a thing for you, or if you don't have good memories of that, you can just kind of tune out for the next little bit here. But basically, uh, tradition that I engage with at a specific time of the year with my family, regardless of what we may believe, because my family is very Christian, so they have a different idea about Christmas than, for example, the pagan perspective uh, of Yule. Nevertheless, there are traditions that we engage in on a secular level that do unite us, you know, so tradition has that power to unite people under a, a, a common, if not a common belief, then at least doing the same thing, a common action that does provide a sense of unity. And that can be really, really nice sometimes, especially in the modern age where everything feels so fractured and everybody is doing their own thing and there's very little sense of unity. So tradition can help to counteract that a little bit. So that can be a positive side of tradition. And the other thing is that tradition helps to connect us with the past. A lot of traditions that we um, follow or that we observe are ancient in their ways. And they connect us to generations that have come before us, that have died, and have passed on that wisdom to future generations. So it doesn't just have the ability to connect us with people that are alive now. It also has the ability to connect us with our ancestors and with ancestors of, you know, previous civilizations going, you know, way, way back, uh, depending on the tradition that you happen to be following. So that's just my plug for the positive side of tradition, because like I said, I know that the Hierophant card is a little bit tricky uh, for some of us out there, and the concept of tradition can be tricky in general. But uh, when the Hierophant is face up like that, tradition, conventional wisdom, and dogma, those are some of the things it can mean. You can look toward the other cards around it to determine whether or not there is a sort of negative connotation implied behind the Hierophant there, or if it is uh, the Hierophant in its most, most positive sense. But uh, when it appears in reverse, the Hierophant is, to me, the reverse position is more of an amplification of the negative aspects, uh, which were otherwise positive in the upright position. So uh, tradition, conventional wisdom, and dogma. What is the negative side? What's the dark side of those things? Well, uh, lacking new ideas, not being progressive. <laughs> those would be the types of attitudes that I would associate with the Hierophant in reverse. So... <laughs> Um, the Hierophant in reverse might, for example, describe your homophobic aunt, you know, or, or, or whatever. Um, that's just, you know, kind of a, a random thing that I just, you know, threw in there just to illustrate the point. But, you know, any idea that is not progressive, that is not moving along with the, you know, flow of humanity, and someone who is afraid to embrace new ideas. So, uh, yeah, the Hierophant upside down would definitely be territory where we're talking about, like, racism and homophobia and sexism and all that kind of stuff, all that kind of nastiness and that, that, that being mentally stuck and lack of progress, that would be uh, contained within the Hierophant in reverse like that as well. So... Okay, well, that takes us through cards one through five. <laughs> I really had hoped that we were going to get farther along, but there's a lot to say about some of these. And like I said, I'm sorry, I, I felt like we had to take a long time on the Empress and the Emperor because the, the issues surrounding gender identity and sexuality and the expression of male authority and female power and, like, all of these concepts, they swirl together and really kind of potentially explosive combination today. And I don't want them to be explosive in your study of the tarot. I want them to be more harmonious, and I want you to develop your understanding and 
perhaps even attain a greater knowledge and understanding of the cards than I have. But those are my recommendations about where to begin. Uh, and yes, I, I do apologize that we had to take so long, but I felt it was necessary for those. Um, again, and I'll, we, we spent quite a, lo a lot of time on the Hierophant as well, and I think that's just because I have found that to be a difficult card in the past. And if you were finding it to be a difficult card, that is one card that is talked about as being difficult for people, and I've heard that multiple times from different people's studies. Um, so I'm wanting that it should not be a difficult card for you. So that's why I took some extra time on those cards there. Um, and I think the Magician and the High Priestess were pretty self-explanatory, but of course, if you've got questions, by all means, please send them my way. I would be more than happy to go into more detail and more depth um, to research more of the symbolism for you, to give you a, a more in-depth look but regardless, and as with all of the cards of the tarot, developing your personal meanings is going to be really key for you to go as deep as you possibly can. And this is a process that will take, you know, years and years, and it will continue to evolve. I don't think you ever really stop learning the tarot. Just today, when I was describing it into the mic for all of you guys listening, I was learning new things about the Hierophant. I was like, oh, wow, didn't notice that before. I'm kind of seeing that in a completely new light. Um... And that kind of thing will happen as you continue to study, and you will be able to ascribe more and more meanings and more and more details um, and get to the heart of what the cards are trying to tell you the more you learn and the more you practice. So that is going to be it for this first episode. So we've gone through five of the 20 cards. So we're not doing horribly, I guess. That would be a quarter of them. And we covered the Fool as well. So on the Fool's journey today, he met the Magician, where he learned about magic and manifestation. He met the High Priestess, the keeper of hidden wisdom and knowledge and intuition. He met the Empress, the archetypal mother figure and the source of creativity and abundance. He met the Emperor, a warlord who emphasizes structure, order, and authority. And he also met the Hierophant, who sits on a throne and keeps the traditional wisdom and the conventional ways of looking at things uh, for all who care to inquire. So that is what we learned along with the Fool today on his journey. We will be continuing it with at least the next five cards, so I'll give you a little sneak preview of what's to come. Next episode, we will be looking at the Lovers, the sixth card, the seventh card, the Chariot, the eighth card, Strength, the ninth card, the Hermit, which is one of my personal favorites. I will just clue you into that now. And then for the final card on this first uh, set here, we have the Wheel of Fortune. And that covers the first, that will cover rather, the first half of the major arcana before we go into the second half there as well. So I hope you will join me next time. I hope you found it helpful learning about this first quarter. And yeah, if you do have any questions or comments, I would absolutely love uh, to receive them. I would love to go into more uh, conversation with you about it. I would love to go into more detail. Please leave me your comments, your questions, uh, your points for discussion, anything that you felt that I left out that you would like uh, listeners to know. Send them my way. Uh, who knows? I may shout you out on the next episode. So once again, thank you so much for bearing with me through that. Uh, and I will catch you next time. Bye. And there you have it. What did you think of the first quarter of the Major Arcana? Are we going too fast, too slow, or just right? Did you have a favorite card from this set, or a bit of wisdom you wanted to share regarding one of these, or perhaps an upcoming card? Send your comments my way. I want to hear from you. In closing, I'd like to make a special thank you to the incredibly talented Dylan Craig for providing the music for our show. If you would like to collaborate on a musical project or book a recording session with him, please see his contact information in the show notes. As always, please feel free to contact me via email at alacrealtarot at gmail.com. That's A-L-A-C-R-A-E-L-T-A-R-O-T at gmail.com with questions, comments, and general thoughts. I happily read for clients both near and far, and if you are interested in booking a reading, please feel free to reach out. Thanks again for listening, and blessed be.